CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Thursday, May 5th. Ben, may the 5th be with you. That doesn't make sense at all, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't. Sure it does. <laughs> huh. <laughs> Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky, Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky, J-O-R-A, V as in victory, SKY. And hey, did you know that Illinois has an average monthly revenue of over $100 million from recreational cannabis sales? It's true. And as of 2022, Chicago hosts an impressive 44 cannabis dispensaries. The Windy City is the perfect place for the Illinois Cannabis Convention June 10th through the 11th. It's brought to you by NECAN. The convention will be the largest gathering of the existing local medical cannabis industry and those getting into the new adult use recreational market. The convention will showcase more than 100 companies, brands, and product lines. There's also four full programming tracks running each day for medical, business, cultivation, and social justice, featuring dozens of expert speakers with practical knowledge and advice for attendees of all levels of experience. All are welcome. Go to NECAN.com slash Illinois, N-E-C-A-N-N.com slash Illinois for information and to register. It is Thursday, May 5th, and this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Alderman Have Jokes Thursday, and here's why. Before I went in there. Actually, I think it may have, the news may have broken before I actually got out of bed this morning. I hate to uh, remind folks that I'm not exactly the earliest riser in the world, okay? You know, more like 10 a.m. is my time uh, to roll out of bed. Well, whatever it is, I roll out of bed today. The news is already broken. That's the sound of breaking news. <laughs> Shattering glass. Breaking news. Uh, in the city of Chicago, big news, big news. The mayor decided... Uh, that the best place in the whole city of Chicago, she looked at every corner of the city and the best place to stick a casino. Some would argue that there's no good place to stick a casino. That's an argument for a different time. Uh, the best place would be uh, River North. Uh, that's the area. That's what they call it. Uh, you know, what? To, until they started talking about it, I never really thought of it as like River North. You know what I'm saying? I just thought of like the near north side, but it's got a name, River North. And so in particular, uh, the mayor wants to put it where the Tribune old printing press uh, is located, which is roughly, uh, what is that, uh, Halstead and Chicago Avenue. Put that in your mind's eyes, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you older residents will know that Cabrini Green used to be right down the street. They got rid of Cabrini Green, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> They got rid of Cabrini Green, moved all the poor people out. Now, yeah, let's have casinos there. Let's put Lincoln Yards up there. Called Development in the City of Chicago. Anyway, 
Um, already the counterpunch is coming from the mayor's people. And they're a sophisticated bunch. And I noticed, folks, because I've been on the receiving end of many of those blows going back to the days of Richard M. Daly back in the 90s when I usually was on the wrong side, and I say wrong side meaning the losing side, of all these development fights. Yes, I've lost way, way, way more than I've won. I can't think of one that I won. Well, the Olympics. Yes. Thank you, International Olympic Committee. Uh, And Amazon. Thank you, Amazon, for not choosing Chicago uh, and getting us to give you all those hundreds of millions of dollars. But anyway, there's generally three ways uh, that the mayor, it doesn't matter who the mayor is, Mayor Rahm, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Mayor Daly, and their legion of PR people. It doesn't really matter. It's basically three tactics that they uh, uh, employ. So when you have a big development deal, that they want to uh, get the public to sign on to. And there's first thing they say is um, I'm just going to ignore, uh, ignore all the local opposition. That's NIMBY. <laughs> they go, NIMBY, not in my backyard. They don't want anything. They don't want their tomato plants blocked uh, by a tower. You know what I'm saying? They don't want traffic. They don't want anything. They're just a bunch of haters and negatory people. So who cares what they think? And realistically, if it's just one little corner of the city, what does it matter? You know what I'm saying? If you're a mayor trying to get reelected. So we've just wiped away all the objections coming from the locals. Uh, then there's uh, the disgruntled losers. You're going to get a lot of that. The mayor's people are going to be bashing like all the whispers that, that, you know, well, this plan, our plan was better than their plan. Cause what she'll say, and probably true to this, there were two other competitors for this casino, right? They lost. So now they're going to whisper, you know, whisper. There's a lot of that going on. Whisper, whisper, whisper. So disgruntled loser. And then they're just going to ignore the third group, which is the group I'm in, which is the group that is just asking, uh, hello, what is the overall cost to the city of Chicago of this plan? Will that cost be met by whatever revenues come in? You know, is this the best site from a social equity point of view to put a huge development? Just think about this, ladies and gentlemen. This is a huge chunk of change is going to go into promoting and developing that site for a casino. And, you know, there's only so much change the city has in its pockets and change that it can find in the bottom of the sofa. When you pick up the sofa, you know what I mean? Yeah, like nickels, dimes, and quarters. Well, there's only so many nickels, dimes, and quarters in that sofa. So they're going to be dedicating a lot of money to this corner. It's just down the street, by the way. I want to point this out from Lincoln Yards. They're already dedicating a lot of money to this corner of town. All you out-of-town listeners, I know there's a lot of you out there listening to this show because I can see that the people in Indiana and California listen to this. This is how Chicago has worked so much in the past. It's like there's the favorite corners of the city that get a lot of development attention and money. And then there's the not-so-favorite corners of the city that don't get much attention and money. All kinds of reasons embedded in that and strategies. Some articulated, some not. And this brings me to the joke of the day. Alderman Walter Burnett, my old friend, Walter Burnett, Alderman of the 27th Ward. Walter Burnett, uh, it, coincidentally, the uh, casino would go in his ward. He signed on to it. I think that may be a reason why. Uh, the mayor picked it because then she could has the cover of say, well, the local alderman supports it. The alderman on either side of the deal are against it. Uh, and that would be Brendan Riley and um, uh, Brian Hopkins. 
So Walter Bernadette says he's for it. And this is how he phrased it. And this quote's gone all around. Everybody's taking it as gospel. And he says, quote, I would rather vote for a casino than vote for a property tax increase. Definitely. And so what he's saying is that the revenue from that casino, whatever it will be, uh, will be used to pay for pensions. We have pension obligations. There's no doubt about that, ladies and gentlemen. We have pressing pension obligations, in this case to the police and the firefighters' pension. So that money will be dedicated uh, for the casino revenue that we bring in will be dedicated to helping pay for the pensions. So it's like either we bring in money from suckers who lose their money at the casino tables uh, or we have to raise your taxes. Well, I just want to let you know, ladies and gentlemen, this is the joke. The joke of it is, of of course, they're going to raise your taxes anyway. Hello, Chicago. In order to build that casino, they got to buy the land. They got to tear down the existing uh, building there, that printing press. Lord knows what kind of remediation costs there will be in preparing the land for construction of a casino. And probably a hotel and all kinds of restaurants and stuff. That's the early proposal. We'll see where it goes. My guest on the show knows the proposals have been known to change from time to time as we get closer and closer to building them. So it's going to cost money. And really the only pot the city has to go to for these kinds of deals is the TIF pot. And as soon as they impose a TIF on that area, if it's not already in an area, I think I think it's if it's not already in a TIF, and I think it is in a TIF. I haven't looked at that map in a while. They're raising your property taxes because that's what TIFs do, ladies and gentlemen. They raise your property taxes. They take property off the tax rolls and dedicate the increased revenue from that property to pay for the project, which means all the other tax bodies have to raise their tax rates to compensate for the money they're not getting from that TIF, from that project. So just think about this. This is one of the most valuable chunks of real estate in the city of Chicago. You can't get more valuable than this corner of town. Real estate development's happening all around there all the time. I'm always reading articles and cranes about some developer wants to build on the Chicago river or some, some developer wants to build in the Fulton street area. So they're going to take that property off the tax rolls at the very moment when it's increasing in value and they're going to dedicate the revenue from that property to pay for a casino that would supposedly pay for our pension obligations. Is there anybody in city hall who's going to do some basic math and subtract the cost of building the casino from the the amount of revenue we bring in from the casino? I've never seen any evidence in past TIF deals that, that that basic math was done. So when they tell you that it's, well, Chicago, it's either a casino to pay for pensions or higher property taxes, what they're not telling you is that there probably will be both. <laughs> there will be suckers who throw away their money at that casino. Hopefully some of it gets into pension costs. And your taxes will go up to pay for the casino. So ultimately, the joke will be on you. All right, that's enough for me. I want to bring on my distinguished guest. She's been sitting there very patiently listening to me. Very quietly. I can see her brain working. (laughs) As she absorbs what I say. 
maybe agreeing with some of it, maybe disagreeing with it. Who knows? Uh, uh, Teresa Cordova, director uh, of the Great Cities uh, Institute. I'm reading. I can't read my own writing, and I humbly apologize. uh, At uh, UIC, a great thinker, uh, had been on the Plan Commission, and a great uh, student. Uh, of uh, urban policy and uh, what we could do to develop all the communities of the city of Chicago, not just the ones that are already developing, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so, uh, Teresa, welcome to my show, and thank you for taking time to be here. Thank you. It's it's a great honor to be here. Great honor to be here. Thank you so much. And I just want to say one thing. I do these shows almost <laughs> every day I'm wearing a Bulls hat. That's just an obsession of me. I just love the Bulls. I love my hats. I got, like, it's really a call for help. I got like 20 of them. Trace is the first guest who ever also wore. She saw me wearing my bull's hat. <laughs> she, she went out. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this scholar that I'm about to talk to, a very learned scholar about the economic development, tax policies, fiscal policies, is that and the other thing? She's also a diehard Bulls fan. So maybe at the end, uh, get a Bulls question. Well, in fact, I think I told you I wasn't going to come on unless I got a chance to talk a little bit about the Bulls. Yes, you did. But, but you know, this hat is, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the designer, but this hat was actually designed by a woman. It was part of the, the program they had this year where they had local designers of of the hats and they did hat give, giveaways. So this was, um, this was a hat I got at one of the games. Yeah, no, it's a super cool hat. And uh, yes, this the Bulls. And it looks super cool on me too, right, Ben? Oh, come on. <laughs> have to ask that question? I mean, even if it was a not a cool hat, it would look super cool on you. Uh, but the Bulls, I think five games a year, they, oh, God, ladies and gentlemen, I could give you a whole discourse on this. So they give away free hats uh, uh, at the Bulls games, but there's a limited number, like 10,000. You, you, you got, man, I, I went, I got one. And Teresa, I had to get there. I said, I'm going to get there at 530 right when the doors open. So I'll get my hat. There was a line of people on Madison going from the Bulls Stadium today. I'm like, they're standing in the rain with an umbrella. Man. Chicagoans will do anything to get a free hat. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, if you want to get those people in River North to buy onto that casino, just give them free hats. Oh, I'll be like all of them. <laughs> All right, we'll get to the casino later, but what I really uh, want to start by talking to you is a report uh, that you uh, uh, participated in about development in North Lawndale. And this will relate, ladies and gentlemen, so follow the connection. This will relate to the discussion of the, ca- the casino, uh, where it's going, and the investment that uh, they will require from taxpayers, even if the city won't tell you there's investment coming. And also, uh, the other topic we've been talking a lot about, Whole Foods leaving uh, Englewood, have had a lot of conversations about that over the week. So in general, what the city is doing uh, to build up its neighborhoods and to try to have a balanced growth, if you will, between the uh, areas downtown and around the loop uh, that are already flourishing, uh, which are already gentrifying, and areas like North Lawndale and Englewood, which are not gentrifying, which are struggling for investment. Uh, and uh, so, uh, Tracy, why don't you just get us started a little bit by talking, uh, talk a little bit about, um, well, first of all, introduce yourself as your, as just the background so people know that you know what you're talking about, uh, your, uh, your background as in terms of urban planning. Go ahead. So, as you mentioned, I'm director of the Great Cities Institute at UIC, uh, representing UIC's um, Great Cities Commitment 
This was a center that uh, an institute that began uh, in the early in the mid '90s as as part of an initiative to support UIC's commitment to to to, unit, to communities communities surrounding UIC um, and beyond. Um, so that's uh, that's the origins of the great cities, and um, you know, our, we're about really that kind of community engagement, right? Uh, working with communities to produce reports, provide uh, information analysis that's useful for community development. We've done a lot of reports, um, as you know, um, on youth joblessness, um, some on uh, the fracturing of gangs. We do a lot of community-based planning work. Uh, We hold a lot of events. You mentioned earlier, Dennis mentioned earlier, that one of the sponsors of of this uh, program is Chicago Reader. We're really proud that uh, Chicago Reader, the readers of Chicago Reader, uh, voted us runner-up on the best lecture series last year. So that's really um, exciting for us and helps keep that bar up for us to do more uh, more special events and more of our lecture series. So one of the things that we do is is we we when we're invited by community groups, um, community organizations, community um, chambers of commerce, for example. They'll invite us to come in and work with them on some project. So in this particular case, we were invited to work on it, producing a data book for them to do an overall assessment of what are the conditions in North Lawndale, not only the demographic conditions, but what about some of the economic conditions. So over a period of several months, uh, members of the staff of Great Cities worked closely with uh, Richard Townsville and staff of the Lawndale uh, Christian uh, development corporation and we we decided together what information would be most useful to them uh, we would then produce some of that data show it to them they'd respond to it it was a back and forth over several months and ultimately what we produced is the is the lawndale data book uh lawndale service area data book um, which has um, some pretty good information that that we then hope uh, and that and so far they are uh, we'll use it to help them uh, think through strategy, recommendations and strategies to pursue neighborhood development in North Lawndale. All right. And uh, there's sort of just five uh, essential categories uh, that are covered uh, in the report, in the book. And let's go through it a little bit. All right. First of all, before I go through it, I've been uh, uh, negligent in this aspect. Tell people where Lawndale is, the community is, and the city of Chicago, so we can position it so folks know exactly what we're talking about. So it would be southwest of uh, the of uh, the loop, um, running along uh, Old Route 66 along uh, Ogden Avenue. And so um, the, the uh, borders on this, you're going to ask me the exact borders, um, would be uh, Roosevelt um, on the south, and on the uh, oh gosh, I'm not going to remember the exact borders now. Um, but it's it's southwest of the city. Got it. It's a and uh, traditionally known as sort of the west side, part of the west side. Uh, it's an area that's been uh, hit hard, to put it mildly, uh, over the last. I mean. You got to go back to the 70s, really, uh, that uh, people talking about uh, development needs in uh, uh, in Lawndale and uh, the frustrations and the inability to bring in uh, money and development uh, to that area. Uh, so I actually wanted, for what it's worth, I was <laughs> I wanted uh, President Obama to put his library 
uh, in that general community. I lost. Um, <laughs> big surprise there. But uh, I thought that would be a good place to. Uh, well, there would have been a lot of vacant land there. It would have been a big. It would have been an economic, a big economic generator. Yes, absolutely. As opposed to putting it in a park. All right, let's not focus, Ben. Let's not go down that path and talk about the presidential library. All right. Uh, so, so in general, there's the uh, the topics covered are what leakage, education gap, uh, racial mismanagement, population loss, uh, and uh, they call for a Marshall Plan uh, for North Lawndale, uh, which is. Interesting Marshall Plan, of course, is uh, alludes to the plan uh, that the United States uh, implemented uh, after World War II to rebuild Europe in the aftermath of that war, that w- which horrifically um, shredded uh, the entire continent of Europe. And uh, if I, I would say, if there's a Marshall Plan in Chicago right now, it's going in River North. Uh, but uh, we'll get hold off for a little bit. It's so ironic. Uh, the area that needs it's not getting it. And the area that doesn't need it is getting it. Uh, but let's take break it through. When when you talk about uh, a Marshall Plan for North Lawndale, what exactly does that mean? Well, what it means basically is an infusion of investment, infusion of dollars um, into the area. So, and before we get to some of the specifics around that, you know, as you mentioned, what has characterized North Lawndale over the last several decades has been severe disinvestment. And so there's not a lot of dollars circulating in and throughout the North Lawndale uh, community. And, you know, why and how and why did that happen? Well, if, you know, there's so many issues still today that we are dealing with that really stem from this whole process of deindustrialization, the sort of massive amounts of jobs that were lost, not just in Chicago, but places um, that had a lot of manufacturing jobs. And you know, those jobs, manufacturing jobs went away. Um, and when they went away, they took away their multiplier effect. So all the other jobs that get generated when you have a strong manufacturing sector. And then once that happens, you've got massive amounts of people who don't have what at that time were really good paying jobs and stable income. So then you have everything that goes along with losing your job, everything from the very interpersonal um, you know, rises in, in traumas to households whether and, and impacts like increased substance abuse, I mean, you know, the, the loss of income, the uncertainty, um, but you had also the loss of, of, of commercial revi- commercial zones, commercial districts in the, in the communities, all these sort of sh- uh, shops boarded up, left, um, and, then, and then you start losing all your anchor institutions, to the, and that even includes churches. So your churches, your schools, all the school closures, for example, were kind of nails in the coffin. Um, of some of these communities. So you have uh, a severely disinvested neighborhood. When you couple that then with the history of residential segregation, um, especially in places like North Lawndale, where there was really an intentional, very focused effort to not only sort of concentrate, right, uh, blacks in the neighborhood, but um, make make it uh, difficult for other kinds of, of, of movement, in and out of that neighborhood. So what you have then is this sort of con- concentrated um, disinvestment in con- you know, and, and everything that goes along with that. So now, we're, you know, you, you take that over a period of decades and we're looking at all the social ills that follow from that, including high rates of violence, um, high, high rates of, um, of um, health concerns, health issues, low rates of access to health, uh, health um, uh, services, 
low rates of home ownership, high rates of, of uh, indebtedness, high rates of um, of, uh, of what do you call it, um, uh, cost burden, household cost burden. So those are all the things that have been happening in North Lawndale. And so while there's been a redevelopment of the downtown, including in the areas where you've been talking about this morning, you haven't seen that equal kind of investment in some of those neighborhoods that have for decades been been lost to this world of, of disinvestment. And, and then the other, of course, dynamic that you mentioned was the gentrification of other neighborhoods, right, where you maybe had stable populations, but those populations are being moved out. So Chicago has always been, um, at least for, for, for many, many decades, um, century probably or more, um, a city of neighborhoods. And one of the things that's very much at stake here is our city as a city of neighborhoods. So a really important economic development strategy, a really important community development strategy, a really important strategy to build and enhance the value of Chicago is to build its neighborhoods, to secure neighborhoods um, that are uh, where there's rapid reinvestment to, to secure it so people are not being forced to, to leave because of increasing property values and high rates of rents and home ownership. So that gentrification, which by definition is displacement, um, you know, doesn't lead to, to uh, forcing people out of those neighborhoods. And then on the other side of that spectrum, how do you invest in, in communities that um, are experiencing this kind of severe disinvestment that places like North Lawndale have been experiencing now for decades? If you look back, uh, going back to, um, well, yeah, let's start with 1968, uh, the riots uh, in the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. King. Uh, that's really, I, I suppose, a good starting point when we think about the disinvestment of areas on the west side. Uh, I, I realize uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, but what might the city leaders have done over the last, whatever that is, 50-odd years to have kept North Lawndale from suffering as it has? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good question. And, and uh, you've got a couple of questions. I haven't yet gotten to one, the Marshall Plan, and now this one. But going back again a minute before, prior to 1968, um, I want to say something about about even post-World War II and even during these periods of high prosperity for so much of, uh, of, of people in the country, you still had high rates of discrimination and, and residential segregation. And you still had this sort of this, um, um, you know, it becomes worse, right, when you have the, the loss of the jobs by the mid-70s. But that process is of, of, the, of the discrimination was already well underway. So that even in the early 60s, prior to 1968, we had what is referred to as urban riots, right, all these urban protests. And, and even though at the time there might have been media and even maybe some academics referred to them as race riots, they were really urban protests. And they were really protests against the conditions in those communities even at that point in time. So in, in 19... Um, what, when, when was the one was the one in Detroit, the big the big ride in Detroit? 67. 67. That led then to Johnson uh, establishing the Kerner Commission. And so out of the Kerner Commission, uh, there was then the recommendation for, in effect, a Marshall Plan approach to rebuilding these neighborhoods. Because they, they clearly said in that Kerner Commission report 
that the, the protests, quote-unquote, riots, were really a direct response to what were some of the conditions. And they mentioned the very same things. They mentioned housing, right, and the issue of access to affordable quality housing. They mentioned the access to more widespread access to jobs. Um, because even though there were a, a lot more jobs in those neighborhoods then than there are now, there was still issue around discrimination within the workplace, um, pay discrimination and so on. So even then that was a big issue. So one of the things that the Kerner Commission talked about was this infusion of, of investment, government investment, setting the stage also for then more private investment to, uh, to come into, into these neighborhoods. And so the answer um, to the question then about what needs to have been done is that there needed to have, they needed not to have been abandoned. Uh, we have a, a, a report, uh, one of the reports on youth joblessness, we call it abandoned in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Youth joblessness amidst the flight of industry and opportunity. And so part of the question is what happened to those people who, who stayed behind, right, uh, in the midst of this, this abandonment? Um, I have a doctoral student, too, who just did a just doctoral dissertation looking at this whole issue around abandonment, which and in interviewing a lot of people, it's one of the things that they said to her, too. Uh, there in North Lawndale, which is like they feel abandoned. So the, the the big answer to your question, what could people have done, is not abandon them. It's like jobs went away. There was no effort to really necessarily retool people getting ready for the new economy. At that point, people didn't even know necessarily what the new economy was going to be. Um, so there were and, and and so a lot of cities in the '80s, as they were reeling from all these uh, from the impact of this of this deindustrialization. They went into a mode during the 80s of, of tax giveaways. You know, they set up the culture of like, well, you know, we'll take whatever we can get. Um, and, you know, we're not there now and we shouldn't be pursuing policy that says we'll take whatever we can get. I think we can. Um, but back in the 80s, that was something that that was was more common. And so meanwhile, there was really people were left uh, really to to do on their own. And then, you know, meanwhile, you parallel that with the quote unquote war on drugs and the the rise of the prison industrial complex, um, then, you know, then you, you create the very conditions that you have, you have there now. So there is absolutely no wonder that, that, the, that what we see in, in North Lawndale um, has been happening. And the other thing that I think is also really important to highlight is that there were, pe- there were people, there are people who stayed and while many of those folks are really, really struggling, right, from the day-to-day difficulties of, of living in, in, a, in a community that's been abandoned, there are a lot of assets in their commu- that community. And there are a lot of people who, are, who have been actively engaged in still fighting for their community. And so even in recent years, for example, we've seen the rise of a lot of social enterprise, whether it's these small restaurants, you know, the, the beehive, uh, enterprise, for example, um, smaller scale restaurants, the the nonprofit groups, I and mean, look how long LCDC has been around, you know, kind of uh, holding things down. And so there's, you know, there are people in the community who stay to provide some of the basic services, some of the basic support that people in that community needed. So, so it, while it may have been abandoned by some, it wasn't abandoned by all. Um, and I think any kind of investment, new investment, any kind of new development needs to begin with those assets, with those folks. 
um, and building sort of a building out because the worst thing that could happen is if you come in from the outside and say, okay, this is what we're going to do in your neighborhood, um, take it or leave it. Right. And I think, I think it becomes really important that, that any kind of investment truly becomes a, a, a way of partner partnerships and a way of forming alliances. Well, all too happen, all too often what happens in the city of Chicago is that once, uh, and we talk in these general terms like investment and gentrification, et cetera, and so forth. But once a neighborhood starts redeveloping or gentrifying or transforming, uh, it, it, it's just a matter of time before it becomes too expensive. The process itself uh, become, causes real estate values to rise so much that uh, it's just automatic gentrification. And I've seen it happen. I've lived long enough, uh, Teresa, to see it happen. <laughs> so many different communities on the north side, uh, in particular, my own, where I live, uh, is completely radically different than what it was uh, back in 1985 when I moved here. So it's it's really interesting when you see the rhetoric change in terms of a city policies from let's invest in a community, let's keep it uh, from faltering to all of a sudden let's slow up, slow the brakes, let's pump those brakes a little bit uh, on the uh, uh, commercialization or the development in this area so that doesn't overheat and drive everybody out. Uh, it's it's a very difficult balancing act. Well, I think I think what you're saying is extremely important. Um, you know, particularly for exactly, you know, what you just said, right? Gentrification is a market phenomena. Um, and there are a lot of early warning signs. I mean, I think, you know, people here in, uh, in Chicago were talking early on in the, in the uh, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s about the early warning signs of gentrification. Um, so there are, there are things that can be done early on. Once the phenomena takes off, it's really difficult. And I think even as we talk about reinvestment in, in, in places like North Lawndale, um, one of the things that becomes important is, again, that, you know, that, that partnership and ensuring that people from those communities are the beneficiaries of the new development. So, for example, in our report, one of the things that we found, besides the fact, you know, you mentioned the leakage, there's $124 million every year that is leaving North Lawndale because there aren't the adequate wage, the wages or the, the, the places to buy their goods and services within North Lawndale, they, they leave. Um, there's always a certain amount of that in any community, but 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 there's a very high percentage of that in North Lawndale, a high amount of that in North Lawndale, and there's a a very extremely high percentage of people who have to leave in order to work in North Lawndale. But what we saw is uh, that when there are new jobs created, or when there have been new jobs created in North Lawndale, they're not going to the residents of North Lawndale. Um, and so I think that's one of the m most important findings of our report. And they're also not going, they're not going, they're primarily going to white residents because you've got, for example, less than 3%, about 2.6%, 2.7% of residents in North Lawndale are white. But, but well over half of the jobs um, are going to whites uh, in North Lawndale. So if you're going to create new jobs in North Lawndale, if there's going to be new investment in North Lawndale, there's going to be jobs then there's got to be um, the ability for people to be able to get those jobs. But then we also looked in our analysis, we looked at the, at the jobs education mismatch um, and found that a lot of the jobs that are, that are there require a higher level of education than have the most of the residents in North Lawndale. So there needs to be strategies around high school completion, 
strategies about post-secondary education because many of these jobs require college degrees. Uh, But also there's a lot that can be done and needs to be done around vocational education. So we, one of our recommendations is, is the need for investment in, in, in vocational education. And that includes things like um, internships, apprenticeships. And when you look at the industries that are growing in North Lawndale, or that are really solid, one is health and another is, is, um, is the education industry in that area. So again, those are, those are industries where you need, um, you need the education. So uh, internship, direct internship opportunities, for example, within health, the health sector would be really important um, that re- make where there's these direct lines. You know, and then speaking of manufacturing, I think we, we you know, there, we can't ignore the fact that there's a whole world of manufacturing out there. And we refer to it as advanced manufacturing or manufacturing um, 2.0. And it's, it's really, uh, there's so much opportunity there for us to be doing a work around building, building up manufacturing sector and, and providing opportunities. Uh, there's a lot of job openings. We did a study a few years back looking at the number of job openings in manufacturing just in the Chicago region. And then you contrast that with the number of, of young people 2024 who are neither in job nor in school. And you see that there's a real opportunity there for inclusion between uh, between people looking for work or, or people who want who could work and people who um, people who need people to work. So I think we should be putting also more effort into building up that manufacturing sector. All right. Uh, when you talk about the concept of leakage, which is money uh, that is uh, in uh, North Lawndale, uh, t- discretionary money that could be spent on businesses in Lawn- North Lawndale, but uh, leaks out or is spent in other communities, uh, that brings to mind the situation with Whole Foods in Englewood. So it's not Lawndale. Uh, it's not on the west side. It's on the south side, but uh, some parallels. Uh, and it was about seven years ago, I want to say, uh, that the city of Chicago uh, announced to much fanfare that Whole Foods would be moving uh, to 63rd and Halstead uh, in the Englewood community and that the city would be spending its economic development dollars, its TIF money, uh, to help prepare uh, the, um, the the site for development. So effectively, they were uh, underwriting the Whole Foods operation there. And uh, now here we are. We discover that uh, Whole Foods is closing. They announced they're going to close. The sales are not high enough, they say, to justify their existence there, their continued existence there. I would say that's exhibit A of what you call leakage. There's got to be enough money in Englewood, in my humble opinion, uh, to sustain one Whole Foods grocery store. I mean, people got to eat, you know, and uh, so I don't know. And I probably you probably don't know either exactly how much uh, money leaks out of Englewood, but to me there's some direct parallels between uh, what you t- describe with North Lawndale and Whole Foods announcing, uh, "Sorry guys, we do not have enough money in this community uh, to sustain a grocery store." Your thoughts? Well, again, you're right. I don't know the exact number, although uh, we're hoping maybe to do some work with some folks down there on on a similar kind of data book. Um, so I don't know the exact numbers, but I think if I were to speculate, I would certainly say that there's enough money in that community to sustain um, a grocery store like Whole Foods or sustain a Whole Foods. You know, I've heard some people say, well, even there wasn't even necessarily all the products there or and that some stuff was still priced at a, um, um, at a, at a 
at a rate there that made it difficult for people, um, you know, because there's so much, you know, packaged products and and processed products, um, even more than the bulk stuff. But but that that being said, though, um, first thing I want to be sure that I don't forget to say that there's there's a lot of really great stuff happening in Inglewood right now, and a lot of really talk about social enterprise work. There's some there's some great folks um, doing a lot of a redevelopment around from Inglewood around uh, grocery stores, around food production, uh, around transportation and doing some small scale uh, economic development enterprise. So I think to the extent that, that, um, uh, that that's happening, that should definitely be supported and acknowledged. So, but even with that, there's still, you know, there's, you still have a really key intersection. You have that intersection of 63rd and Halstead. So across the street, you have, have Kennedy King, which is a fantastic, fantastic city college under fantastic leadership. Um, and, and then you've, you've got this really important corridor. It was an important intersection. It was an important intersection in the history of Inglewood. Um, and so just from a design point of view, that whole intersection there where the Whole Foods is, I mean, from my point of view, there, there's just so much more that could have, should have been done when that development occurred that would have made that a much more interesting, much more inviting, much more enticing corner um, and, uh, uh, and, and much, much safer. And, and uh, just, it would have just really, really enhanced that quarter. So in, in that kind of situation, design really matters. But the other thing, uh, a couple other things, one is you, you know, the deals were made with Whole Foods, Whole Foods got bought out. Um, this is sometimes the problem when, you know, when you have different, different, something like that change ownership, maybe Whole Foods was amenable to being accessible to the community and really wanted to do it. Uh, and, and Amazon um, wasn't thinking in those terms. Um, but then the other question that I ask about that, and I don't, I don't have the answer to this. So this really is a question. It's like, what were the details of those tax agreements? Um, you know, we're, you know, the, I mean, what, having done work in the past um, around uh, tax incentives, you know, m- you, know my, you, you mentioned it earlier, right, about the importance of cost-benefit analysis when you're doing that. If you're doing a tax district, for example, you certainly shouldn't be putting 100% of the, of the, of the incremental taxes that are generated into that area because then they're not paying their fair share of other of other things that taxes support, in which case their development is basically being subsidized by other people. So what, you know, what's that percentage, right, that's actually being being given? It, it, it should not be 100%. Uh, but then the other question is when you're making these kind of tax agreements, because particularly beginning in the 80s, as I mentioned before, there was this sort of mentality by many cities across the country of these tax giveaways. But we don't need to be in that position anymore. There should, it, it is okay, and in fact... You know, I think they, 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 there's it's been the expectation has been established in other cities where there's a certain understanding that if we're going to get these tax breaks, there's something in return that we have to provide. Um, and so one of the most obvious ones should be clawbacks. I mean, how do you make an agreement that you're going to give somebody something without, without a guarantee that what they say they're going to give you um, is actually given? So it's, it's, it's sort of not that hard to really build in to an agreement that we're going to give you this this uh, this tax incentive, but in exchange, we want you to st- commit to 10 years of being here or 20 years in some case, because that's a lot of times what these bonds are, 20 years. We'll give you 20 years, but if you leave you know, prior to that time, you have to pay back X amount of dollars uh, if you leave you know, prior to that. So 
that's not that hard to build those in, right? And then to and to make sure that, that there's penalties for those non that non-compliance. So okay, we're going to give you a tax break, but then this is what we expect in return. It's uh, th- that last line. I I don't know. That's not that hard uh, to put them in. It, what what what's in, yes? You're absolutely correct. It's not hard to make uh, a demand and negotiation. Uh, and I'm only viewing this from the outside, Tracy. You know that I've never been on the inside, but as an outsider looking in, it sure doesn't look like uh, they're playing hardball when it comes to these things. And this is one of my great frustrations when I take a look at the t- the city's TIF program in general. When I think I, I have no evidence whatsoever that the cost benefit analysis is ever applied, ever applied in any TIF deal. Uh, in other words, how much money are we giving them and how much money do we anticipate getting back and what will be the impact on taxpayers and what will be the impact on all those other taxing agencies that are losing their tax dollars? They're losing their ability to tax this profitable piece of land. I've never seen any evidence that that kind of basic elementary cost benefit analysis is conducted, much less presented to the uh, public. In the case of Lincoln Yards, the Tribune revealed that one of the one of the uh, chief requirements before you create a TIF district uh, and then turn it over to be subsidized is that its property values be falling in relation to the rest of the city. Otherwise, it doesn't. It's not warranted. If property is already rising in the area, it does not need a subsidy to be developed. And what the Tribune, <laughs> I'm laughing because you got to laugh, Tracy, to keep from crying. What the Tribune realized, they had to rush through this deal because there was a, like a dateline that showed that the, the property values had increased beyond the rest of the city. And there, I see this across the board in all kinds of, of TIF deals. So what my greatest concern is that there's nobody, correct me if I'm wrong, or there's nobody with significant clout, let's put it this way, uh, in City Hall to de- make these demands and hold uh, whoever is getting the benefit of Whole Foods, Amazon. Remember, we were ready to give Amazon whatever. Talk about Amazon. They were, we were ready to give them how many untold billions of dollars for their uh, their headquarters. I see no evidence that these cost-benefit analysis are done or that um, there are people rigorously negotiating with the beneficiaries of these TIF handouts. Please correct me if I'm wrong. You know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, um, at, at least in the context, you know, of, of um, Chicago right now. Um, you know, I can't say that. I mean, I guess what I can say is I haven't seen them either. Um, and I don't think that the public has seen them. And I think that, um, you know, I, I don't mean to, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not being naive when I say it's not that hard. Right. I mean, when I, when I, and, and I'm not being, I'm not, when I say that I am fully aware that there's politics that make it actually quite hard. Right. Um, but I think it also begins with sort of assumptions that you make. So, and that's why I keep going back to the reminding us, like in the 80s, this so the culture of cities, of city economic development policies, they were so desperate um, for revenue that they would literally say, we'll take whatever we can get and we'll, and we'll do it completely on your terms. And, and I think it takes a sort of, we're not in the 80s anymore. I mean, we can argue it wasn't a good policy then, right? But never mind that, right? We'll leave that alone for a minute because that certainly wasn't Harold Washington's policy. Uh, 
He took a much different approach. Rob Meir and all his economic development staff, they took a much, much more proactive uh, approach. They were doing, you know, business incubators and, um, you know, they were, they were, they were really, they were doing things and they were make, they were creating partnerships, but they weren't doing them under any conditions. And so I think we, I don't think we should be assuming that it has to be in under any conditions because the government is sort of in this unique position of representing sort of stewardship on behalf of the, of the greater good of the public. Um, and, and then interfacing with all these other stakeholders, right? So how do they balance the various needs of the stakeholders? And I still do, I do believe at least in my interaction uh, with developers over the years, you know, cause when I was very young, I used to think, God, oh, you know, develop all the developers were bad. Right. And I think maybe, maybe I came to that because I saw so many bad developments, but you know, as, as I've, lived and and interacted with more developers i think there are a lot of good developers out there who don't who want to do the right thing they don't want controversy they want as much certainty as they can get sure they're going to want some benefit to help them make make the deal more feasible but what they also want is to know up front okay this is what the expectation is um and i think if you establish the expectation that look if we're going to get this we're going to have to you know provide something in return and it's, it's, I guess it's a bit of a culture shift perhaps. Um, and I guess, you know, you get maybe what you, ex, what you put out there that you expect to get. Um, and, and I know in, 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 a, in a personal examples of, of my own, I know that when, when developers um, um, came to me and said, okay, not, this is not, not in Chicago came to me and said, okay, we want to do a, a t- some tax increment financing. Well, the first thing I did is I went to the economic the development staff so he could give, give me an analysis here tell me how what percentage we have to land on in order to make sure that the rest of the taxpayers are not subsidizing this development right that they're getting the increment that they that they're earning on that space but we're not and that we're not giving away our property taxes um and and that we're and that we're having them generate the the uh the retail tax um, and then they can get what you know what they generate above what the current amount is now. I mean, and and then you you propose that to them. They're like, well, we were hoping to fill a little bit more. I said, well, these are what the numbers are. It's like, well, okay, <laughs> you know. And then they're like, well, okay, yeah, you know, that's what that's what we'll take because that's what you know that still helps us, and that's clearly what makes sense for you know for 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 good stewardship. Uh, yeah, I see no evidence that that's going on in in Chicago. But that's and by the way, it's, at, to your point, which is a good one, that it's not hard to do. Uh, I'm just going to name three professors at UIC off the top of my head, uh, aside from uh, Professor Cordova here. Uh, but Rachel Weber and the late, great Janet Smith, may she rest in peace. They got tons of kids, man. Smart grad students at the University of Illinois, Chicago. I call it Circle Campus because I'm old, whatever. <laughs> they could do this. <laughs> They're really smart. There was a guy at the hideout the other day where I was, we were talking about the ward map, but a guy, a young man came up to me and he was talking to us with me. And he was like, he took the deep dive trace into like how much uh, we pay more in taxes for the TIFs. This is not, this is just a basic point that has never been established. And the city won't really even recognize that TIFs raise taxes, which is such a joke. Cause, cause that's the only way that, that the damn program works, but whatever. Um, and just the notion, like, they don't want us to know this stuff because I think if we knew how much extra it costs, there might be a rebellion against them. And it is, this is Dick Simpson's favorite point, uh, in the absence of federal financing, it's the only game we have. 
So you got to kind of look the other way at this stuff to a certain degree because it's the only game we have. Anyway, your thoughts. Well, I, I, you know, I think when you're, if you're looking at, I mean, you said it earlier, it's right. It's the cost that it's both sides of the ledger. You can't just talk about benefits and you can't just talk about costs, you know, and, and it's, and it's weighing the two together, you know, that, that gives you, that gives you the analysis. If you're only saying, well, these are what all the, the costs are. Well, then that's completely ignoring the, you know, the arguments that are being made by people say, well, look, but here's all these potential benefits, you know? And so it, it, the, the two really need to be analyzed hand in hand yeah. um, in order to really sort of assess something. And, and, and then, and then you, and some costs are, uh, and some benefits are more difficult to measure, you know, granted. Um, but I think, you know, at some of the work can be around what are these measurements? You know, how do we measure a cost? How do we me- measure a benefit? Um, how do, how are we going to measure the cost, for example, associated with, you know, gambling addiction? Um, in in in, rela- in relation to the benefit, that's going to be it's, you know it's a tougher measurement. But how do we me- how do we measure the loss of of other re- of other uh, retail sales uh, that might be generated um, that might you know go um, be channeled in, in a different direction? I mean, there's but but it, but I but I you know you said something earlier too that I think is really interesting, which is the the rapidity the rapidity with which stuff happens. Um, on one hand, if you know if you've done development, you know you know that it's a really tedious process and it takes a lot of time, and uh, and so and time is money when you're doing development. So on one hand, you want to move the development process around. Well, you know one of the things that uh, that you know that Richard Townsell from uh, Lawndale Community Development Corporation comments he made when we were at City Club was, you know we're we're ready we're ready for investment, right? One of the other thing one of the other panelists had also said. You know, this stuff takes so takes so long. What can be done to help speed it up? And you always, but you want you want to balance that though with it not being so done so quickly that nobody has a chance to like stop and think. But wait a minute, what is going to be the best way to do this? What is the way to do this in a way that that really uh, maximizes benefits and minimizes the cost? Um, are there ways that we can mitigate the cost? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so there's you know, I it's 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 um it's it's difficult when policymakers are making it just making decisions and the market pressures the economic pressures the political pressures are there to make decisions quickly or as quickly as one can and the kinds of the cost benefit analysis that we're talking about you know adds additional time to that timetable so what do we need to do to sort of systematically set up the infrastructure so that these cost benefit analyses can be done easily? I mean, part of why in my role that I was able to say, hey, give me that, give me that, that economic development analysis before I decide where I settle on this. Um, you know, there was, a, there was a certain amount of infrastructure that was in place where, the, where we had an economic development person, a consultant um, who was equipped and trustworthy that we could say, okay, you know, give, give us this analysis. Well, uh, one thing that could be done and should be done right away uh, is to calculate the cost. And talking about the casino now, uh, just use this as an example. The cost of tearing down that printing plant, an enormous printing plant. Now let's just think about that for a moment. Just to, to your general themes. There was a printing plant there, unionized workforce, well-paying jobs, uh, it's now obsolete, apparently. Huge printing plant. I mean, if you go buy it, uh, 
on just take a drive down Halstead. It's, you see, it's enormous. In the old days, there'd be trucks there and all kinds of uh, manufacturing activity. Good jobs. Okay, they're gone. And they're going to be replaced by a casino. So just think about that as a cost. In part, you know what I mean to the city of Chicago. You're taking one kind of job and replacing it with another. Now, uh, people in would tell you, well, Ben, that's just called progress. You know, the printing plants are obsolete. Well, that's a reality that the city of Chicago is going to have to confront. So what are we going to put there in its place? That's just a reality, Ben. Get over it. But I'm just saying, I'm pointing out, that's a, you talked about this, the deindustrialization trace of, of the West Side 60s. It's still going on as we speak. So there's that. Then there's, oh, so there's the cost of tearing it down. So what is that cost? What's it going to cost to tear it down? And there's the potential cost of uh, remediating the land. Like, in other words, clearing out the toxins, whatever pollutants are there that you have to get rid of, if, if there are there, testing it first. So who's bearing that cost? That's something we should ask right off the top of the bat before we can address the issue of whether we really are going to be able to use all the proceeds uh, to uh, from the casino to uh, contribute to our uh, police and fire pensions. We may discover that if you just let the owners of that land negotiate their own sales agreements with other, you know, let the market be the market. I mean, all these uh, free market types, University of Chicago, let the market be the market, get what they can for the land and develop on their own, paying taxes the whole time might be a better deal for taxpayers than spending money to build a casino there. Do you, I mean, just that's a fundamental, I don't think that would take too much time. Do you? Well, you know, Ben, I actually don't know the particulars of this deal. I mean, in the deal, did, and you asked the question, who's paying for it? I, I don't know the answer to that. The answer might, all right, okay, so I, I, I it may have been out there and I just missed it, um, but um, th- th- that is an important question. Who's paying what? Because I'm sure it's been negotiated. I'm sure it's part of the, part of the package somewhere. So the first question, question is, you know, some of this, you know, has to be, proprietary right has to be sort of in between the parties but but it's still public dollars right so at a certain point it has to be accessible right? what are, what are, what are the particular um, deals of this who's paying for what um, you know and and I also know that a lot of these buildings especially one of that size um, it would it's the economics are such and this is always a problem, right? Because again, that's sort of going back to what, you know, the economics in the market that make it difficult to say, well, we're going to actually find another way to retrofit that building and you know, repurpose it and do, you know, do something else there. Um, I don't know if anybody did that analysis. I would have hoped that somebody did somewhere along the way, because I've been to cities um, where there've been some incredible, really interesting, unique developments that have occurred within big, big sites like that. Um, really, really interesting, cool stuff, even, you know, whether it's Minneapolis, you know, whether it's LA, um, I mean, there's just some really cool sites all over. Uh, Denver has done that. Um, and, you know, our first, it's it just, you know, it, I mean, I know, you know, just think about how sometimes it's like, oh, my, by the time you got it and re- redo the pipes and everything, and it's like, you know, and, and, and re- remediate whatever it is, you know, you should have been cheaper to tear it down and rebuild another one. So that tends to be sort of the economics of it, right? Mm-hmm. But again, back to the cost benefit and 
how you measure certain things, what you decide to measure, how you measure it are, you know, some things are like I say, are more difficult to measure. How do you measure uh, coolness, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, um, in a building, but uh, like, you know, like how do you measure, you know, historical value uh, in weighing it like, well, brand new building with, with the most up-to-date features. Well, in fact, will it have the most up-to-date green features? Are we building that into, our, into these expectations? Um, so I, you know, I, I just think there's a lot, I guess I believe that there are a lot of a good, a lot of good enough developers out there who are primed to do good, innovative things um, that help elevate the quality of, of uh, the built environment and the quality of the human experience and the urban experience. And I think, uh, you know, and I think that, that generally folks of, of that ink um, are going to want to, um, they're going to want to see better quality developments. Yeah, fair enough. And I, and I, I have to add to this, the point when you were making this, uh, when you were just talking, uh, it triggered a conversation I had just uh, last night with a friend uh, who works at the uh, old post office. Mm-hmm. There you go. Downtown Chicago. And, uh, yeah. yeah, they did a fantastic job of building. And that was TIF funded. Uh, so everybody goes, Oh, Ben, you hate tips. I think I told you this tips are just a tool. It's just a way of raising money, uh, to finance a project. They're not inherently evil. It's how you use them, how you use the program as a whole, uh, (laughs) heads in the evil direction. Uh, and, um, so I, uh, from uh, I haven't I've actually never been in the old post office, but uh, I've talked to a couple people have, and they just tell me, oh, how beautiful it is. And I remember when we were first discussing that's how old I am, Teresa. When when the city was first talking, it was daily years about uh, the post office. Had the U.S. Post Office announced it was closing down its facility right there in the South South Loop. And uh, here was this giant white elephant that wasn't paying any taxes because it was government owned. And how can we put it on the tax roll? How can we put it to use? And at one point they were talking about a casino there, believe it or not. There was a talk about a casino there. Um, Bloom, I think it was, who uh, lost out in this process, was talking about putting a casino there and was uh, uh, putting in for TIF money. And I remember writing a column in the reader going, you know what? Mr. Anti-TIF thinks that this would be a good site for a TIF because it would put it back on the tax rolls. So uh, you're right. Your point's well taken. Uh, there are creative ways to do these things. Uh, and, you know, the another good example, I think, of, of a creative development potentially, I think I think it's going to be, if all indications are, the, on the old Michael Reese site. You know, and that's one where th- that there were a lot of there was a lot of community engagement there. There were, you know, there was a lot of interface with not only the older woman, but a lot of people she brought to the table as well as other stakeholders. And I think the developers there would probably say that the product that they ended up with is a much better product as a result of the engagement they had with multiple stakeholders on it. I mean, it's just like, it just makes sense, right? When you have different people contributing their creative ideas or they're bringing to you, well, look, could, if you shifted it this way, you know, we wouldn't have this impact and this would be easier for us to deal with this. Or how about if you did that? You know, it's like in that creative sort of energy. So one of the things that, that, um, that I feel proud about in my time on the, as chair of the Chicago plan commission was changing the, the process for, uh, for approvals around the, the, um, the big, the, the bigger, the master plan developments so that, Stakeholder involvement has to occur from the get-go. 
it's not like, you know, they come down, you know, and they speak the two minutes before the plan commission or the city council, but they actually get engaged into the process early on. And you're going to always end up with a better product when you do that, especially if you set up the, the environment in a way that, that, that is that people feel that they actually, they feel comfortable speaking. And, and we'll close uh, with uh, another uh, uh, a, a shout out, if you will, uh, to something uh, along those lines, which brings us back to the hats we're wearing. The United Center, uh, when uh, Howard Pizer, who was representing Jerry Reinsdorf uh, and the Wartz family negotiating with residents uh, and the community development agreements that they had to deal with and negotiations that they had to deal with residents in the area. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, was a lot more successful development, to put it mildly, than White mm-hmm. Sox Park, uh, where there wasn't that kind of interaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more or less, let's do what we, it was a total 80s thing that you're talking about. We're leaving the city, the White Sox announced, unless you give us you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah. Everybody's moving heaven and earth to keep the White Sox in the yeah. city and uh, last minute changes of plans. And we're going to obliterate this, that uh, it was, there was a lot more negotiation uh, with the UC. Uh, so uh, to your point, yes, I do believe it benefited. I believe that even the owners would say that, that they benefited from working with folks. Yeah, you get, you, better, you get a better quality. I mean, if, if you've got someone that doesn't want to sort of work with people, then it, that probably tells you that maybe that's not the one that you wanted, you know, that yeah. you want. Uh, all right, we'll close. Uh, since I mentioned the Bulls and you're wearing a Bulls hat and I'm wearing a Bulls hat, we'll move away from development for a couple of minutes uh, to get uh, Professor Cordova's uh, assessment of where my beloved Chicago Bulls are going. This is a little Bulls talk, ladies and gentlemen. He promised uh, me that if I came on, we, we would get a little bit of time to talk about the Bulls. <laughs> it took all my restraint to just have the entire conversation about the Bulls. Uh, so are you uh, optimistic I am indeed. Go ahead. Why? I am very optimistic. Well, you know, if you look at the teams, for example, that, that we've been playing in the East, right? The ones who are, who are, who are still in, right? Miami and, and, um, uh, you know, Boston, Philly, Milwaukee, right? It, it, they built over a period of several years. Um, we're, we're only into one, you know, you're one of that really, right? Where we've got, you know, new, you know, new front office, change front office. We've got, you know, the, um, the new coach and so on, you know, they, they, they picked up DeRozan and, you know, got some young players. And so I, I think, I think the bulls are back. Uh, we're in the process of rebuilding. I think we're relevant now. Um, what we need to do though, we need to get, we need to get some really, we get, we need some big men. I mean, we, we've been saying this all season long, right? It's like, you know, how, how could we possibly have, have won, you know, that series against Milwaukee when they had almost the entire games, they had three guys out there who were over seven foot tall and how many pounds, you know, and we've got like six, you know, six, seven, <laughs> you know, guys, six, yeah. eight guys trying to guard these guys, right? Yeah. You know, and then of course, it, and, and then it hurt not to have ball because we didn't have that perimeter defense, right? So, so I, I hope Zach Levine, you know, decides to, you know, to stay with it. You know, I think there's still a lot more that he can learn from from Mr. Mature uh, Rosen and um, the Rosen. And um, I'm I'm just really optimistic. And once again, I'm going to spend all my uh, all my 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 entertainment allowance on on bull stick. <laughs> 
Me too. Uh, my my discretionary entertainment allowance. <laughs> a lot of it's going over to the United Center. You're welcome, United Center. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> what can I tell you? I love the Bulls, and and I discovered Teresa loves the Bulls too. We when we had the pre-show conversation, folks, it was like 45 minutes of Bulls talk. And <laughs> this lady knows her stuff. I'm gonna bring her on for a whole Bulls part of our Bulls group because she really does know basketball. Hey, can, but you know, as we close out, I got I I do got to do a shout out because besides the games that I went to, I watched every other game that I didn't go to. And I have, I got to say, man, I love Stacey King. I love Stacey King. What a freaking great treasure for Chicago, you know, and his partnership with Adam Amin is just like, you know, they, they make the game interesting. They make it fun. You know, when, when they say something, you're like, okay, yeah, you know, that's, you know, that that's a good analysis. And then I love these guys in the, in the after show too, the, the post-game analysis. Oh, Kendall right? Gill, yeah. Kendall yeah. Gill is like freaking awesome, man. Yeah. And, and, and <laughs> I will do, you know, Jason Goff. I, so they're, they're part, they're part of what made this year special too. And, um, it'd be a huge shout out to them. No, and, and, and you're right. Cause that, that, uh, I, I, I love it, man. Someone, uh, I love to tease sports writers, uh, who get down on quote unquote homers in sports. And I'm like, you know, you're not Edward R. Murrow here covering the fall of Europe, okay? It's sports. <laughs> He's like, I'm a sports writer. Well, no, you know, yeah, they didn't, they didn't need to get down on these guys. You know, they were they were out there playing their hearts out. They worked hard. They 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 brought so much joy. Absolutely. No, I, I'm with you. Uh, Stacy King is amazing. I love Huge that man. fan of his. He makes games entertaining. He makes them fun. I really missed him when he was out. We had COVID mm-hmm. this yeah. year. Yep, yep. Uh, and uh, I think he missed the two games, the two incredible DeMar DeRozan games, or uh, DeRozan won them at the buzzer, yeah. which are just highlights. Remember one was on New Year's Eve, and then one oh, was yeah. on New Year's Day. Yeah. What a way to bring in the new yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if I only could have bottled that and used it in February and March and April, well, you know, you can't always get what you want. But we saw we saw what they're capable of. Yes. We saw what they're capable of. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for next year already. All right. Very good. Me too. Uh, I want to thank you very much for coming on and talk development. I appreciate it. And then we're going to bring you back real soon. All right. Right on. It's been nice. All right. Thank you so much. That's great. Teresa Cordova. Uh, Shout out to Lori Glenn LG. I see you, Lori. Lori uh, sort of hooked us up. She likes to hang out in the, you know, back room. Ben, don't mention my name. Well, what the hell? I'll mention it anyway. Uh, just to irritate her. All right. And uh, so thank you very much. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And it's Teresa Cordova, Lori Glenn, and Mayor Lori Lightfoot will tell you back home in Alton. They call him Dr. D. And the D stands for DeMarvelous. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Mm-hmm.